We're going to talk about this morning the five kingdoms that are identified in this chapter, and we're going to coalesce chapter 7 with chapter 2. When you read the Gospels, you don't get a full picture of Jesus in his ministry by just reading one Gospel. But when you read all four of them together, you get a much, much more uh, full view and understanding uh, of Jesus, his person, and his ministry. And it is a, a significant thing. Same thing is true, uh, I discovered when uh, reading Daniel chapter 7 and going back and rereading Daniel chapter 2 and melding the two visions. And that's what we're going to do this morning to gain a fuller understanding of these five kingdoms that are identified and where they fit in time and space and history and how, how in fact, we relate to them. So this is a very, very, I think, very, very relevant study. With that in mind, let me just call your attention to chapter 7. I just want us to read through the first 14 verses, and uh, the latter part we'll uh, begin to uh, parse next time, but I want to do some review with you this morning. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me, the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground, so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up, eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. 
He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. In those verses, we're, we're going to see five, five kingdoms established. And we know they're kingdoms because later in the passage, uh, they're identified as such by the angel who's interpreting the dream to Daniel. This is actually a very, very amazing uh, prophecy of world history and the kingdoms that will rule the world. As we look at this, I want to remind us of, of a very, very important truth. The overarching theme of the book of Daniel is something that we cannot repeat enough. Who's in control? God is in control. Is he in control of just a few things? Is he in control of everything? Everything. He is sovereign over all of his creation. He rules in every possible manner and way. He rules everything. Now the question always comes up, well, what about my choices? I make choices, and how does that fit in? No one knows. You cannot reconcile God's sovereignty with our, with our choices. We try to, and very often in so doing, we end up on some, some tangent or some, some bad rail, if you will. So the, the reality is that you have to hold both of those truths in tension. God is absolutely sovereign. He is in control. And yet we do have a capacity to choose and we are responsible for our choices. And there's, there's like two parallel lines that run together off into eternity, not to be reconciled in our existence. Hopefully when we're in heaven, God will show, how, show us how it all worked out. But, the, but the, the reality is God's in control. We saw that in the first six chapters when we, we met Daniel, we met his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we saw them in these various situations and dilemmas and how God was ordaining and indeed leading and guiding and rescuing them from very, very treacherous situations. The same truth is found in the, six, the second six chapters of this, of this book, and, and more particularly with world history and the nations that God raises up nations. He raises up peoples. He puts kings and leaders in place. We may want to argue with some he puts in place, but nonetheless, he puts them in place. And he has his purpose, and we trust him. Our part is to pray for those people and to pray that God would make them godly leaders and that his will would be done. Now, as we viewed this passage uh, we saw last time uh, the first four kingdoms, and they were represented by four beasts. And beasts for a reason, because these are, these are warring kingdoms, these are fierce kingdoms, they're beastly. And the beasts represent the nature and the course of the times of the Gentiles. You see this reflected by Jesus when he talks about the end, and he says the end will come when the, when the fulfillment of the Gentiles comes about, when the fullness of the Gentiles. So the times of the Gentiles is really a kind of a technical expression, technical term, and that covers uh, the period, that long period from the Babylonian Empire to the second coming of Jesus Christ or to the Messianic Kingdom. I have a video for you I want to, to give you some perspective of these first kingdoms 
starting with the Babylonian kingdom we talked about last time. That would be the, the area covered by the Babylonian kingdom. And then the Persian Empire, you can see, was even more expansive. And that's the Macedonian of the Greek Empire, was even greater than that, reached further limits. And then finally, the fourth empire would be the Roman Empire. And so that just gives you some perspective on where these empires and how expansive they were in the ancient Near East. So these, covered, these empires covered the times of the Gentiles. And the times of the Gentiles, again, go right up to the second coming uh, of Jesus Christ, as I hope to demonstrate this morning. Daniel chapter 2 recorded a, a dream that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar had, and that dream was of a large statue that was segmented uh, in, and represented different nations, different uh, empires. And da Daniel chapter 7 describes also uh, these Gentile empires. In both of those chapters, the emphasis seems to be, when you read them, and I encourage you to go back and reread both, especially Daniel chapter 2, uh, there's an emphasis on the last kingdom, and the last kingdom is going to go through several stages. This is where I want to call your attention to the chart on the back of your notes. We're just gonna, I'm just going to identify these for you. We're just going write, to write down through them, and then we'll uh, talk, give you a little bit more detail as we go. Over in Daniel chapter 2, again, that statue... Uh, that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of, and he asked Daniel, Daniel interpreted, and the head was a head of gold. Do you recall? And Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of the gold. You, you are the king of kings. And so we know that this statue and this times of Gentiles starts with the Babylonian Empire. That's, where the, that's, where the, 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 very, that's the head. After that, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that after him then uh, a, a, another kingdom would arise who would be inferior to his kingdom. And we look at history, and we look back at history, and we see the kingdom that followed the Babylon, Babylonian kingdom, was the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medes had a, had a small kingdom for a short period of time. They were overrun by the Persians, and then there was this dual empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. And the inferiority is seen not only that it's a second empire, but it's made of silver, the head and chest of that image were, was of silver, and silver certainly is inferior to gold in terms of relative values, true? The third empire that would follow would be what we would understand, looking back and again from history, would be the Macedonian Empire or the Greek Empire. And this was represented in that image by the belly and the thighs of brass. And then following on the Greek Empire, the fourth empire would be the Roman Empire. Now when you look at Daniel chapter 2, it's presented actually in three stages. And, and you have to read it kind of closely to pick this up. There is the united stage. Then there is the two division stage. And that two-division stage would be represented by the two legs of iron in the, in the image. And then the third stage of that fourth empire would be the ten-division stage. 
And that would be represented by the 10 toes of the mixture of clay and iron. Now we would have really, we had really no idea what these, what these image represented and what these nations were if we, if we didn't have history to look back on and correlate the two and say, well, this image starts with Nebuchadnezzar and then has these successive kingdoms. And so these kingdoms must be then of necessity the Medo-Persian, the Macedonian, and the Roman Empire. But then when you examine the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire uh, did uh, uh, continue on in various stages. And we'll talk about that in a second. And then lastly, we have the fifth empire that's identified in Daniel chapter 2. That's the Messianic kingdom. That's the kingdom of Jesus Christ set up on the earth, represented obviously by the, by the rock that's cut out, uh, not with hands, and it ultimately destroys the image, all the worldly kingdoms. And it's one last kingdom that fills the whole world, uh, we're told by Daniel. So the imagery is amazing. Um, and again, when we hold it up against history, we see that there is a, a very, very, very close match. And so we're not far off uh, making the assumption that these images do mean and represent these kingdoms. You go over to chapter 7 of Daniel, as we've been studying, we see a correlation with chapter 7. And as I suggested earlier, when you bring chapter 2 and chapter 7 together, you see much greater clarity in terms of uh, what these images represent. Now, in chapter 7, these kingdoms are represented as beasts. In other words, their, their, their evil nature, their beastly nature is being represented rather simply than their governments in the, uh, in the first uh, section. So in Daniel chapter 7, the first kingdom would be Babylon. That's the kingdom in which Daniel now is living. And that's represented by the lion. And we, we looked last time at the lion and the, and the imagery, and it seemed to match up with what we understood would be the Babylonian Empire. The second one, again, would be the Medo-Persian. That would be represented by the bear. And the bear, uh, as we looked at the characteristics of the bear and the things that seemed to match up with what we could understand from history, uh, would represent the Medo-Persian Empire. The third kingdom would be the Hellenistic or the Macedonian or the Greek, however term you want to use to express it. That was represented by the leopard. And this was presented in Daniel chapter 7. It was presented in two stages. The first would be the united stage. That would be under Alexander the Great as he conquered uh, what amounted to be the, relatively the known world. And then after his death, after his demise... The, the, the Greek kingdom was broken up into four, represented by the four heads of that leopard. So that would be the four division stage of the Greek empire. It's amazing when you think about it and you look back at history that this prophecy was literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before these events ever occurred. Now there are skeptics, the liberal theologians would take a step back and they say, well, we don't really believe it was prophecy. We believe that Daniel was written after all these events happened, so therefore it's accurate. They would base its accuracy on the fact that the book was written later. Uh, there's nothing supernatural about that, is there? Daniel says they're visions, they're prophecies. 
and they're to be treated that way. And when you look at it that way, you absolutely have to be amazed at how God is in control of human history. And God organizes and raises up nations. The fourth empire, we'll call that the fourth empire, and that also is presented to us in stages, not only in chapter 2, but also in chapter 7. The first stage, again, would be the united stage. The second stage would be the one world government stage. And that would be represented in verse 23. It says it will devour the whole earth. The third stage of that fourth empire would be the ten division stage, much as we saw in Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, the ten, ten divisions were the ten toes. Over here in chapter 7, it's the ten horns. And so there's a correlation there. And then the fourth stage of this fourth empire would be, uh, we'll identify it as the Antichrist stage. Or the one world ruler stage. Or the absolute ruler stage. And then the fifth kingdom would be the messianic kingdom And that will be represented uh, as we continue on in chapter 7 by the the, uh, um, one like a son of man who was given authority and power and such as we read. Now, why did God raise up these four kingdoms? Did these kingdoms just come about circumstantially? Did Did they just... Were these arbitrary, that just people groups just kind of rose? Or if there is a God who has a design and a purpose and raises up peoples for his purpose, what might the purpose be for these individual kingdoms, do you think, if you understand Bible history? Because Bible history really is, it gives us the behind-the-scenes picture and understanding. What's going on in the history of man? Why the Babylonian kingdom? What do you think? Why Babylon? Why Nebuchadnezzar? What's the big deal about that? If, if the Babylonian empire starts the times of the Gentiles, what preceded the times of the Gentiles, biblically speaking? Time of Israel, the time of the Jews, right? Has Israel been walking in obedience to God? Faithfully? Worshipping him and him alone? No, they've been involved in idolatry. They've been involved in all sorts of heinous practices. And God again and again and again. And Jesus says this. He says, I've sent my prophets to you. Sent my prophets to you. And all you did was what? Kill them. So God had sent to them uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Within this recent time frame, and those prophets overlapped in terms of their, their lifetimes, and they were continually, they had one message. What was the one message? Repent. Repent. If you don't repent, judgment is going to come. God says, I'm going to bring judgment on you. And he even names the judgment. It will be Nebuchadnezzar. So even before Nebuchadnezzar rises, God names him. So God raises up Babylon to judge his own people. And indeed, we read that the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed Judah, 
destroyed the temple, slaughtered the people, carried off uh, the elite, if you will, to Babylon to be re-educated. And so everything God said came to pass. Now Jeremiah prophesied that, that the Jews would be in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And of course, because the Jews never listened to Jeremiah, remember he's called the weeping prophet, he's just no one, he had not one convert. How would you like to have his ministry? No wonder he's called the weeping prophet. But he prophesied they'd be in captivity for 70 years. The Jews, of course, didn't listen to him. They'd given up all hope. They don't realize that after 70 years that they're going to be returned to the land and be allowed to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. Hence the second nation. The Medo-Persians under Cyrus. The last, if you look at 2 Chronicles, the last passage in the 2 Chronicles leaping over into the next page would be the book of Ezra, you see Cyrus, who is the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, issuing an edict to restore the Jews back to Jerusalem, back to Judah. So God raises up the Medo-Persians to displace the Babylonians and to restore Israel. You would think that there would be an easier way to do all this, wouldn't you? But God has this terrific purpose. After the Medo-Persians comes what empire? The Greek Empire. What purpose could the Greek Empire serve in God's grand scheme of things? Language. The Greeks expanded the empire, if you will, their empire, to the greatest limits of all these empires under Alexander the Great. And they brought with them the Greek language, which would become the language of the day much like for, for English-speaking people around the world and for many people, English seems to be the language of the day. And so almost every place you go, even though people say, I don't speak English, they do understand English. You go to places like China and such where uh, people want to learn English. Great opportunity for evangelism, you can see that. So God's laying the stage so that the, you have essentially the, the known world speaking and understanding one common language, and that was brought by the Greeks. The Greeks pass off the scene. What's the empire next to rise? The Roman Empire. What does the Roman Empire contribute, do you think, to God's agenda, God's plan? You ever hear of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome? Rome ruled with an iron fist. Rome built roads allowed for transportation, allowed for communication, allowed for all manner of, of, um, of commerce and society to flourish under that peace of Rome. What a perfect place now to bring the Messiah in, in, into the world. The language is set. Jerusalem has been rebuilt. Transportation and communication throughout the empire now is possible. There's a great peace that allows for all this. So now the stage is set. The Messiah comes, Jesus is born, the church is born, and the gospel can be preached initially. So you have to stand back in awe and see what God does with all these nations and how he positions them and what they contribute to his plan and purpose. 
And you and I are much the same way. God has a plan and a purpose for each one of us. You may be sitting there thinking, I don't know what, what I serve, what do I do? You're not going to know until you begin to say, God, use me, and, and I want to serve. But if you just sit back and don't involve yourself, then you're never going to know. Now, the fourth empire, if you look at verse 7, and then again in verse uh, 23, the fourth empire is described as being different from all the others. The fourth beast is different from the other beasts. Verse 23 says the fourth kingdom will be different from all the other kingdoms. And it will devour the whole earth. This kingdom goes through five stages. And if it goes through five stages, then we cannot properly call the fifth kingdom Rome. It will start with Rome, but then it will evolve in five other, four other stages. The question is, what made the fourth kingdom? What made that fourth empire, beginning with Rome, different from all the previous empires? It says it was different. What made it different? I want to suggest to you that the key difference, as you compare these, the key difference was in the type of government. Rome initiated a particular kind of government that heretofore was not seen in the ancient Near East. Rome initiated an imperialistic form of government. This is going to play through and have bearing on the last stage, as you'll see. When the Babylonians conquered an area, they didn't set up Babylonian rulers. They rather set up indigenous nationals to rule the area that they conquered. So people who are already familiar with their people, customs, and so forth, it would be much easier for them to rule that way with less chance of rebellion, as you might imagine. In Judah, when um, Babylonian, the Babylonians conquered Judah and Jerusalem, uh, you read back in 2 Kings chapter 24 and 25, they set up nationals. They set up, first of all, uh, Zedekiah to rule, and then later on, uh, 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 Jedaliah. The Medo-Persians were much the same. They used the same practice. And when they conquered, the Jewish, they set up Jewish governors. And we see we know two of those governors uh, as Zerubbabel and later Nehemiah. Both we see in the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. The Greeks, same thing. They worked in the same way. Instead of sending Greeks to rule their conquered lands, they allowed, especially in Judah, they allowed the Jewish high priests to govern throughout the period, the entire period of the Greek dominion. But Rome, Rome began a new system of government called imperialism. This is where you get the, the, the expression imperial Rome. This was a whole different form of government. This was what made the fourth kingdom different from all the others. When Rome conquered, Romans were sent in to rule. This is what made them uniquely hated by the Jews. Because the Romans ruled uh, with their armies in place, their rulers. Uh, and this, you, we see Pontius Pilate uh, in Judah. We see uh, Festus. We see um, also um, Felix. Uh, you see King Agrippa. 
also uh, spoken of in the latter chapters of the book of Acts. So Rome sent in their own rulers. So a better name, I suggest, for the fourth kingdom, rather than name the whole fourth kingdom Rome, we name it the kingdom of imperialism. Because Rome was only the first of five stages of this fourth empire of imperialism. Are you tracking with me okay? Making sense? So the first stage was the united stage, which was the Roman Empire as we understand it. That's the first stage. While it has been common to call the fourth Gentile Empire by the name the Roman Empire, it's only true of the first stage of this fourth Gentile Empire, and this fourth Gentile Empire would be an empire of imperialism. Think about it that way. It's also become customary to think in terms of the revival of the old ancient Roman Empire. You, when you read and you hear various prophecy teachers, uh, they talk about the Roman Empire, and then in the end times, uh, they talk about the revived Roman Empire. And when, in fact, when you look at these passages, there really is not a warrant for saying that. It is more consistent, I think, to follow through the five stages with the Roman Empire being the very first stage or the united stage, rather than looking to a revived Roman Empire at the last days, as most people. And, I mean, that's, I've heard that so many times, and no doubt you have also. And this, this, this first stage, this united stage, lasted from the years 63 B.C., to 364 A.D. That was the length of time. The first stage, we will identify as the Roman stage, that's how long it lasted. Neither of the Daniel passages, not Daniel chapter 2 and not Daniel chapter 7, allow for gaps between the Roman Empire and a revived Roman Empire. And neither one of them speak of a revived Roman Empire. You don't see that language used. Uh, that's simply supposed. The second stage of the empire of imperialism would then be the two-division stage. This was foreseen by Daniel chapter 2, but not seen in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 2, this two-division stage is evidenced by the two legs, if you will. The second stage began in the year 364 A.D. And it began when the Roman emperor Valentinian divided the Roman Empire into east and west. Does that vaguely sound familiar? From that point on, the empire of imperialism was divided into an east-west balance of power. The West was headquartered, where do you think? In Rome. The East was headquartered in a place called Constantinople. The Eastern Division remained in Constantinople until the year 1453. And it was in the year 1453 when it collapsed under Turkish conquest. 
And when Constantinople fell, the political leaders, the scholars, the writers, uh, the people of means who had the capacity uh, to flee, they fled northward into Russia and infiltrated the, the government up in Russia. And they, in so doing, they set up a Roman type of government, imperialism. The rulers called themselves czars, which would be Russian for Caesars. You see how they kept the theme as they went. After a while, Russia gave herself the official title of the Third Roman Empire. It's interesting when you track this through history and you see how these things actually play out. You track, if you will, the, this imperialism and where it emanated from was Rome itself. Eventually, the Eastern Bloc of power was centered in the Soviet Union and included the communist bloc countries, which we are all familiar with until the, the, the breakdown of the Soviet Union. And with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Eastern European communism, uh, the Eastern balance has simply shifted to Russia now uh, and the Commonwealth of Independent States, which were previously uh, many of those communist bloc countries. Things are still shifting in the Eastern Bloc, however, uh, with the rise of Islam. And many of us are aware of that as a major Eastern power. And there are many people now looking at a uh, configuration of Russia and uh, some of the uh, Eastern Islamic countries forming a conglomerate and marching on Israel. So that may or may not happen. Pure speculation at this point. So don't hold me to that. But we do see the rise of Islam happening in the East and becoming a significant uh, center of power along with Russia. The Western division of power remained in Rome from the years 364 to 476. And in 476, Rome fell. The power then shifted to France. And especially with the power gained by Charlemagne in the year 800 A.D. Charlemagne, interestingly called his kingdom, his domain, the Holy Roman Empire of the Frankish nation. Frankish is just another word to describe the French. In the year 962, Otto I of Germany defeated the French. He defeated the Frankish nation. And he set up the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation. You see, the theme is still the Roman Empire. They're still carrying through that theme. And it, they are still imperialistic forms of government. It was under his rule that the leaders named themselves Kaisers, which is German for Caesar. So the picture and the image is still carried through after all those years. 
Since then, and more particularly after World War I, the Western balance of power now has been centered in the democratic nations of the West. So where does that bring us? Well, in the year 364, the two-division stage began. And it continues to this present day. The centers of the balance of power may shift again, but it will still remain essentially an east-west balance until it gives way to the third stage. We talk of it today, don't we? The east and the west. Politically, uh, economically, we speak today in those terms. And that emanated way back when the Roman Empire was divided into two. And we just track it through history, how it remains. And that is characteristic of the third stage. Now, the next three stages... The next three stages of the empire of imperialism, according to this scenario. Now, I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, but I'm suggesting to you, uh, my best understanding is when you combine these two chapters, chapter 2 and chapter 7, you get this picture. So according to that scenario, the next three stages are still future. This is key. If this is true, then these next three stages are still future. At some point, apparently, the east-west balance of power will break down. If you follow closely some of the things that are going on today in our world, there is great pressure for the breakdown of this east-west balance of power. You have to be almost blind and deaf not to hear it and not to see it. There's great pressure to move from an east-west balance to a one-world government. This stage, I suggest to you, is seen in Daniel chapter 7, verse 23. It's not seen in Daniel chapter 2. That's why I'm saying the wedding of the two chapters is important to get this overall picture. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 23, we read this. The fourth kingdom will devour the whole earth. And I say, well, is that, isn't that just figurative language? It, it could be. The whole earth, devour. I mean, that's clearly figurative language. But there's a picture being painted there. Would you agree? It doesn't say part of the earth. It says the whole earth. So it's going to be, it's going to be a rather large and encompassing uh, kingdom that is going to reign. This is something that Rome never did. Some will argue, well, that's figurative language when it says it will devour the whole earth. They really mean the whole earth as it was known at that time. Rome didn't even conquer the whole world as it was known at that time. Let me give you just a few examples. Rome did not even extend as far east, as I suggested earlier, as did Alexander the Great's kingdom under the Macedonian Empire. The Greeks went way on into India. And Alexander would have gone even further, except for the refusal of his generals. They simply got tired. Alexander was like an eating machine. His armies and his generals, they took country after country after country, territory after territory after territory, as you remember from our, our graphic uh, picture. 
But his generals said, we're tired enough, we're done. And so Alexander could not go any further. But you see, Rome didn't even conquer the area that Alexander had conquered. So they didn't devour the whole earth. There was another empire uh, that was subsidiary to, to the Romans, and that was the Parthenian Empire. And uh, that, too, was part of the known world, but they were not conquered by the Romans. Another example would be the area of Scotland. Rome did not conquer Scotland. In fact, Rome had to build the Hadrian Wall. Hadrian's Wall. Remember, some of you remember that from high school history? Hadrian's Wall. That was built to separate the nomads of northern Scotland from overrunning the part of Britain that, that Rome did conquer. We have a map. Oh, yeah. yeah you, it looks like an imposing wall, doesn't it? <laughs> that really kept them out, huh? <laughs> I'm sure it was much larger when they built it. No other empire except the fourth is said to devour the whole earth. The fourth empire, at some point, at some time, according to Daniel and according to this scenario, will control the whole earth and will devour it. That's what Daniel chapter 7, verse 23 implies. The fourth empire of imperialism is yet to control the whole world and form a one-world government, which is something I suggest that is yet to happen. There seems to be much pressure today to bring that about. So for that reason, I suggest to you that Rome must not be seen as the totality of the fourth empire, but only as the first stage of the empire of imperialism the empire of imperialism. The third stage, which will be the one world government stage, will happen at some point when the two division stage, the east and the west, collapses. We might see that. How long that stage lasts, we don't know. The next, or the fourth stage, that was seen, it was seen both in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, that is the ten division stage. It's seen in Daniel chapter 2 as the ten toes of the image. It's seen in Daniel chapter 7 as the ten horns. The similarity is too great, I think, to, to not suggest that they represent the same things. The ten division stage is clearly seen and it's stated to actually come out of the one world government stage. Look with me at verse 24 of chapter 7. He says, The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. In other words, the kingdom that precedes it is the one world government. Ten kings will arise out of it, giving rise to the ten stage kingdom, or ten division stage, I should say. Now, for some reason, not told to us at all in the Bible, the one world government will divide into ten kingdoms, and those ten kingdoms will cover the whole world, not merely Europe. It's common to, to reference uh, the ten kingdoms as being Europe, 
or more recently the common market or now the EU, the European Union. And some people would suggest that it represents the um, uh, UN and, the, and more particularly the Security Council. Uh, we don't know. They don't seem to fit because these ten kingdoms literally uh, are over the whole world, not just Europe or the EU. The text does not allow for that, I think, that kind of interpretation. At the very best, the European Union uh, might be one of the ten uh, uh, phases, but it could hardly become all ten. There is a proposal, interestingly, and again, I, I, this is not, I'm not something I'm advocating for. I just, as an example, just merely as an example, uh, I don't necessarily believe this is absolutely the truth, but there is a proposal by a group known as the Club of Rome. And these are an assemblage of leaders who got together back in the early 60s uh, and began to envision the very thing we're talking about, amazingly. And they envisioned uh, a, a world divided into 10 administrative districts. And their whole purpose was to avoid an uh, economic collapse of the world economy. Now, there's much talk today about uh, the, the world economy and such. And uh, if you Google, if you have a computer and you Google the, the Club of Rome, you'll see that this is their design to take the whole world and to break it up into 10 districts. And interestingly, it, it would correspond with our 10, 10 uh, division stage, but uh, I can't say categorically that that's it. It's just an idea, just an example. Uh, it may or may not uh, come to fruition. We're told next that it's during that 10 kingdom stage that the little horn or the final world dictator will begin his rise to power. So again, you see this continuity from one to the next to the next to the next. There's no gaps. There's no revival of the old ancient Roman Empire. There's just this transition from one stage to the next to the next to the next. And this, this stage is the little horn stage. And eventually we're told that he will be strong enough to uproot or to literally displace three of the kings and apparently the other seven who remain will submit to his authority and his power uh, if it is a him. Okay, we don't again know for sure. We're going to look at that in more detail later. This will begin the fifth and final stage of the fourth Gentile empire. The fifth and final stage. This will name the Antichrist stage which is the stage of absolute imperialism. Absolute imperialism. A one world ruler. Antichrist. Now the contrast you have to see is amazing because there will be one day a one world ruler, won't there be? But a great ruler, and that'll be who? Jesus Christ. The Antichrist, a one world ruler. Do you see the contrast there? He anticipates uh, the coming of Christ and his rule. We reach verse 9 in chapter 7. And verse 9 ushers in the fifth kingdom. And the fifth kingdom is the final form of world power. And this fifth kingdom is destined to overthrow and to utterly destroy 
all the preceding empires erected by violence-worshipping men. And this will be the Messianic kingdom. Daniel's vision suddenly changes, or what he sees changes. He sees an awesome thing. He has a vision of the Ancient of Days taking his seat upon the throne, and it is a throne of judgment. We know that because of the symbolism, and and again, we're going to parse this in more detail next time. The Ancient of Days is the eternal God who has no beginning or ending and who oversees all the days from eternity past through the eternal future. The Ancient of Days. Verse 9 is an abrupt transition. It's a transition from the seen by the sea with all of the beasts coming up, a terrifying vision, and now it transitions to a courtroom scene. And the thrones, and the Ancient of Days sitting on his throne. It's interesting that he remarks that he, Ancient of Days, took his seat. A judge is only ready to pronounce judgment when he takes his seat, when the judge is seated. Many of us realize that from our own courtroom scenes. Uh, The judge isn't on the throne, he's not on his chair, he's not seated, Uh, court is not in session. Once the judge sits down, court is in session. So we see this reflected here. We no longer have the description of these animal-like hybrid beasts, We see now that the two main characters in this section of the vision are described, and they're described, interestingly, in human-like terms. The Ancient of Days and the One Like a Son of Man. In essence, when you stand back, what we have is we have a movement up the chain of being. We started out with the evil human kingdoms, and they were described as these horrifying hybrid beasts and animals. And then we rise up to the divine realm, and that's imaged to us as human beings. And the association, I think, is perfectly appropriate uh, to image them as human beings in the broader biblical viewpoint, since if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, when God creates man, he creates man in his own image. And so it's very appropriate now to image the Ancient of Days, the one like a son of man, as human beings so that we can relate uh, much more easily. So in in the first 14 verses of Daniel chapter 7, we have simply, if we break it down this way, we have two image clusters. On On the one hand, we have presented the four beasts with the horns, And these represent depraved human kingdoms. On the other hand, we see two human figures, the Ancient of Days and the One Like a Son of Man, who image the divine realm. So you have the fallen sinful realm on one hand imaged in the first half, and in the second half you have the realm, the divine realm imaged to us. And there is this marvelous Uh, description of these two realms, the human evil and divine judgment. But also, it speaks of a conflict. These two pictures speak of a conflict between those two realms, but that conflict 
we're given notice that conflict has a certain and clear conclusion. We're not left in doubt. Aren't you glad about that? Which is going to reign? Who, is, the, is the earthly kingdom going to conquer? Is it going to be interminable? What's going to happen? No, we're given the fact and the truth that there is a certain and clear conclusion. The beast, presumably the, the boastful horn, was destroyed. And by comparison, the one like a son of man is exalted and he is given an eternal kingdom. One is put down, the Antichrist is destroyed and Jesus is risen and given this eternal kingdom. You see this contrast. If we can reduce it simply to this, though human evil thrives in the present, God is in control and has the final victory. God is in control. Despite all these terrifying beasts, despite all these governments, despite all the injustice, despite all the cruelty, despite all the wars, there is a clear, conclusive end, and that's on the side of God. He's in control, and he has the final victory. There is, I think, an implicit message in all this for us. It comes down to this. Remain faithful. Remain faithful in spite of appearances. No matter how things appear, don't panic. Remain faithful. God has given us his word as a guide for our life. We know the truth. That's why you read the Bible. If you're confused, if you don't understand which way to go, if you don't understand what to believe, open your Bible. Open your Bible. Read it, read it, read it. Listen to what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You and I have no idea of what he's going to reveal in us. Remain faithful. That's his whole point. Again, he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. He's going to blow our everlasting minds. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, For our light and momentary troubles... Now just consider the circumstances of your life. Do you consider them light and momentary troubles? That's how we're meant to look at them. These are light and momentary. They're not going to last. He says these light and momentary troubles are achieving for us. Present continuous tense. They are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So, he says, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. How many times we fix our eyes on what is seen and we get caught in this downward spiral, don't we? We go, oh, woe is me. Woe is me. Oh, God, where are you? I'm still working. I'm still here. He says, shut up. <laughs> so we fix our eyes. Not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. And what is unseen is eternal. Our hope is not here. What are we living for? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of this world. 
Oh, I'm sorry, I misread it. Always give yourself fully to the work of this life. Oh, give yourselves fully to what? The work of the Lord. Turn to your neighbor. Turn to your neighbor. Urge your neighbor to give themselves fully to the work of who? Of the Lord. Tell your neighbor right now. Give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know, you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You're not just spinning your wheels. God is faithful. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Amen? That's our hope, church. That's our hope. And God has painted this picture of history for us so that we would have that hope and we would not be anxious or fearful for anything. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for your revelation. Thank you for your purpose. Thank you for history. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for the hope that you have given each one of us. Thank you, Lord, for this season called Christmas. We're reminded of the birth of the Savior. God, you yourself took on human flesh to fulfill these prophecies. And Lord, as we look to each other, and we look to people today, God, that we would be reminded and we would be reminders of your mercy and grace, because that's exactly what we need, your mercy and your grace. And though our sin has been great, God, your grace is greater. We thank you and we praise you for that. We love you this morning, Father. Use us, Lord, for your glory. Open our eyes to the opportunities, to what your calling on our lives are. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen, church? Amen, amen. amen.